Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I, like most people, like a good fictional character, particularly in films and TV series. So um, I've put some up here. Um, there's a, a particular kind of person up here. It's not necessarily organised between good guys and bad guys. Um, because sometimes, you, you know, you love characters and you, and you love to hate other characters. But it's not necessarily based on their, their morality as such or like some of their actions. It could be down to um, how humble they are. So I just want to... <laughs> rate some of these people out of 10. Let's start with Tony Stark up there. Most of us probably know who Tony Stark is. Um, If one was absolutely zero humility, incredibly prideful, arrogant, that's one, and 10 is so, so, so humble, um, Tony Stark, hands up if you think Tony Stark is one out of 10. One, two out of 10. Three, four, five, six, seven, Eight, no one up here, and ten. Brilliant. Okay, so let's move on to Emperor Cusco. I don't know if you remember this film, awesome film called Emperor's New Groove. Does anyone know who I'm talking about here? Ah, skip it. You know what I'm talking about. Great. Well, you three, how humble would you say it was? One out of ten, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He becomes more humble as we go. What about Gaston from Beauty and the Beast? Hands up for one, two, three... Four, five, six, yeah, no one up there. Absolutely, he just loves himself, doesn't he? Look at that picture. And you've got Miss Trunchbull down here from Matilda, one out of ten. Janet does not like Miss Trunchbull. Two out of ten, three, four, five, six. Yeah, it's not going any higher than that, is it? Now, what if we were to put our beloved leader up there? What if we were to put uh, this James's face up there? What if we were to do that? I mean, I'm not actually going to... I'm not going to ask, you know, for some numbers. I could, do, I could do the same with any of you. In the end, it would be probably a little bit humiliating for a lot of us as we learn that we're not quite as humble as we think. Um, but what, what actually is the appropriate thing to do if there's someone around us that you think isn't maybe as humble as they could be? Maybe they're not doing things that you think they should. What is the appropriate action? What do we actually do? Um, how do we... Put them in their place without saying, I'm better than you, because as soon as you do that, you're not looking very humble anymore, are you? So we're going to read a passage today, and hopefully that's going to um, guide us along the path of humility. Um, so let's have a little read, James 4, 4 to 17. You adulterous people, strong start, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So, with the book of James, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Jewish Christians. So when he starts the passage with such forceful language as to say, you adulterous people, the thing that's coming to mind for them is their Jewish background and all this Old Testament stuff where the Jews turn their backs on God. They say, ah, right, you saved us, brilliant. We'll treat you as we should treat a saviour. And then immediately they turn their backs on God. And God often uses this, this metaphor, you know, I said adultery. He uses this metaphor of uh, a bride, his people being his bride. So you've got God as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. And when they turn their back on him, he, they're committing adultery. Um, and he still uses this metaphor today. Um, so the Christians reading this are thinking, flipping heck, I am like, you know, th- those ancestors of mine that would do the same thing to God I'd turn their turn up they turn their backs on him and, and we also do that and that gives us a reminder as well um, James says don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God don't you know yeah of course they know to become a Christian in the first place you have to say I did it the way of the world and you saved me from that mess, and I'll now, I'll now do it your way. And that's our promise. We say, God, you've made me your friend. I'll live your way as your friend. And James is writing that they went back to their own way. Equally, we have gone back, um, but they're given a hopeful reminder. He reminds them that God longs for your very soul. He is jealous for you. He is jealous like a bridegroom might be of a bride. But it's not a petty jealousy. It's not a, it's not a selfish jealousy. It's perfect. It's a beautiful jealousy. He knows that it is for our best to be with him and do it his way. He knows it is for our worst to be with the world. And uh, this little diagram might help us picture what God's jealousy looks like. So we've got God up there and he's got really, he's perfect. He's got really high standards for us, really high standards. And this is us here, the little blob with the line coming off it. This is us here. And we don't meet his standards. We don't, we come far from his standards. Um, And yet, 
God wants to bridge that gap. There's that distance between us, but God will want to bridge that gap. That's his jealousy for us. Um, So let me briefly go through what being friends with the world is and what it isn't. Uh, What friendship with the world is, writing's a little bit small, sorry, Um, not asking God for stuff, one. That is what friendship with the world is, not asking God for stuff. Asking God for stuff, but doing it in the wrong motives. Having selfish ambition um, and loads more stuff that James has just talked about a few verses before this. Loads more stuff. And you can sum it all up by saying, um, we haven't trusted God to make us complete. When we don't ask God for stuff, we aren't trusting him to make us complete. And when we ask God for stuff, um, but with the wrong motive, we end up not trusting in God, but trusting in the stuff that he's given us as a gift. And when we have selfish ambition, we look at ourselves, our selfish selves, to complete us rather than trusting God. So that's what friendship with the world is. And what it isn't is... We're not told to be friends with the world. It, it, it doesn't mean we literally can't be friends with people who aren't Christians. That is not what it means, and that is the opposite of what Jesus spent loads of his time on earth doing. And it also doesn't mean we can't enjoy earthly things that God gives us. It just means that we follow through with the promise we made to become friends with God, and that is to do life his way. But as we've already said, um, we've not managed to do that and we've broken that promise. And so we can't bridge that gap. So we're interested in how God ends up bridging that gap. We have a jealous God and that is a perfect jealousy. It's a good thing. He wants our souls for himself and he knows that is the best possible thing for us. So how does he actually bridge this gap? Um, Our second point is our broken pride. And it means that we have an opportunity to get out of this problem we've got ourselves into if we have our pride broken. Verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. And this gift came about through God's own sacrifice on the cross. So we have here, on that previous one, sorry, um, we have... A little cross-shaped bridge forming the gap between God and us. And that is how uh, God bridges that gap. Um, Verse 6 again. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows grace to the humble. So it requires our pride to be broken. To receive that grace. That way to God. That undeserved cross-shaped bridge. Our pride must be broken. But as we've said previously, James is writing to Christians. Christians have already had their pride broken. If you're a Christian here, you've already accepted God's grace and have access to God. But James writes about pride here to both the proud and the humble. James isn't saying, oh, you humble Christians, you have this sorted. I'm just talking to the proud here. He's addressing all of them with this next stuff. He tells them to submit themselves to God, resist the devil, come near to God, wash their hands, purify their hearts, grieve, mourn and wail, 
humble themselves. I'm summing up all of that stuff when I say that James is telling us to be broken. That Christ would make us whole. James calls this church a lot of stuff. He calls them adulterers, sinners, double-minded. They might have thought, we're Christians. We're already saved by God's grace. That's all sorted. He's trying to draw out of them a greater humility. And as they come near to God, they realise how far they are from him. And this gap seems to get bigger. But they are made whole by the same thing that saved them in the first place. As we uh, humble ourselves and we realise how far we are from God, verse 6 says, he gives us more grace. And so we get, you know, that same thing is saving us. And that is our walk with Jesus. As we submit ourselves to him more and more, as we grow in humility, as we see how incredible he is and how we fall short and how small we are, how far we've wandered from him, he gives us more grace. And he draws nearer to us. And he makes us look more like Jesus. So, um, a couple of questions for us on this. Where are we being convicted of our sin, but shrugging it off? Or laughing it off? Discussing your community groups. How does God want you to draw near, but you are busy loving a life apart from him. Put it this way, if James visited our church and you know, he hung around with you a little bit, he hung around with the church, and then he wrote a letter to us, what would be the kind of thing that James would be writing to us? What would he call out? What specific stuff that is between you and God would he say that you need to stop having joy in and literally be sad about but we also don't want a church that's just full of sorrow Um, it's easy for one church to emphasise only the joy and salvation and another church to um, emphasise the the sorrow in our sin and people say oh those Christians are very serious they're very intense the Bible tells us there's a time for both And James is writing here, telling them they need to get more serious. So we want a healthy balance and be broken for our sin and take joy in knowing that God is making his his people complete and he's making his plan complete. So we come to two specifics, two ways of applying this stuff that James thought were relevant to the church that he was writing to. God's complete people. That's the first. He wants us to speak like God has made us to speak. God has made us all complete. And so we shouldn't sink to less than that. Verse 11 says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. But if you read around this chapter alone, um, not even the rest of the book, you see James like insulting this church with all sorts of stuff. So what's the difference between um, what James is doing and what he's telling the church not to do One is full of pride and the other is full of humility. James is writing to the church to see them come closer to God. He's writing so that God's complete people, made whole through the brokenness of the cross, move more and more down that line closer to God and look more and more like God. 
Whereas the church James is writing to were talking about one another out of judgment. They would damage each other's reputation. Um, they would you know, gossip about each other to be divisive. James wants people to be whole. And the gossipers, whether they knew what they were doing or not, were dividing the church. So a helpful question to ask. Whenever you're going to talk to someone about something that you think is, is, is a problem, or you're going to talk about that person when they're not there, behind their back, what a helpful question to ask is, is this helping to build God's church, or is this helping to build me? Is this what I'm going to say? We've had loads on speech in these last few weeks. Uh, Luke preached on, on the tongue and taming the tongue last week. Dan talked about wisdom. Um, again, he's talking about our language. The question you want to be asking, is this to build God's church or is this to build me? And that will help us understand whether we're saying it in pride or saying it in humility. And when, when we're correcting someone to their face, it's, uh, it's not something that most of us enjoy. Um, and so it can actually be the humble thing to do. Um, you might have, if you're in a relationship, you might have had to tell them at some point that they've hurt you. You don't enjoy that. If you maybe manage someone at work, you might have at some point had to tell them they've done something wrong. It's not something that most of us enjoy doing. It is the, it's for their good and it's the humbling thing for us to do because you know what? They can end up hating you. They can. People can end up despising you when you say that they're doing, they could be doing something better. They could be more like God. And it's actually putting yourself on the line to build God's church. And what would it be like if we as a church were able to adopt a posture of humility? When we don't like something or we disagree with something, we talk to each other about it. What but our pride is gained from talking to someone uninvolved in our issue? If in humility we talk like the church God made us to be, verse 8, God would come closer to us. If we used our speech to build each other up and build God up, God's presence here would be more noticeable. We as CCM Riddish would be a place known for where God is. And James's second application of the humility he's writing about is acknowledging God's complete plan. We are um, a part of God's plan and it takes humility to acknowledge that God has a complete plan, and we're actually a tiny part of that. It takes humility to uh, accept that. And when we acknowledge how infinite God is and how perfect his plan is and how unknown the details of his plan are to us, it has an effect on how we speak and how we think. We move to a heavy reliance on God. But you might be like me. And so often you forget to involve God in, in our decisions. He's totally omitted often from my thoughts um, and the way that I talk about what I'm going to do. And others in here might even, you know, you might even shoot up a token prayer to God and say, oh, I might involve God in this one. Yeah, God, you can be a part of this. But a li- it's a little gesture to say, okay, God, um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of control here. But humility moves us to a full acknowledgement 
a full acknowledgement that he is involved, whether we ask him to be or not. He decides the velocity of the earth moving around the sun. He has dictated how, far, how high the earth pushes the mountains into the sky. He is the one holding each and every single atom together. He has written the politicians that get into power and lead our countries. He has decided the bus timetable and the bus delays. He is so massive. He has um, written it all, and we are a tiny part of that. And James says, what is your life? What is, what is in your control, really? I can't even control the numbers of hairs on my head. That's a lie, of course I can. Um, this is what I wanted, obviously. Um, but, you know, what, what's our appropriate response to that? We can dwell for a long time on, on how little we are, but we're told um, to just bow down at God's feet and put our plans at the foot of the cross. That's what we're told to do. We take on God's plans put our plans at the foot of the cross and take on his plans. And we have made ourselves broken, but are made complete by Christ. And let us not think that we shouldn't plan. It's really easy to hear this and think, ah, I'll just walk around without a plan, see what happens. We can plan, we can strategize, but it's holding to those plans lightly. And we say, Lord, what do you want for this day? What do you want for me? What is your will? What is your will for my relationship with this person? What is your will for my career, my occupation? What is your will for where I live? 